fill in the blank, a follower of Jesus Christ is a person who… <laughs> what is the difference between someone who is really following Jesus and someone who is not? I wonder if I actually gave you a chance to speak up, how many different answers we would get this morning about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When you start reading through the Gospels, it points out how Jesus was often misunderstood, even by the people who were closest to him. Some had the idea that Jesus came to throw off political and cultural oppression. So they wanted to make him king, have him start a revolution. Some were sure that Jesus had come to give us a free lunch. He fed multitudes, right? He even told a woman that he could give her water, that if she would drink it, she'd never be thirsty again. I want that water, Jesus. Get that for me. No, that's not the point. Some had the idea that Jesus was a great healer, which he was. And so they brought the sick to him, all of their sick to him, and he did heal many of them, but he wasn't just here to be a great doctor. Some got the idea that Jesus had come to squash all evil people. Jesus and the disciples were going by a certain Samaritan village. They wouldn't welcome him. James and John said to Jesus, well, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven to nuke him? James and John, Thunder Boys, no thank you. It's not what I'm here to do. Some people then and some people now have the idea that Jesus came to make everything here on earth now be okay. After all, God wants me happy, doesn't he? No wonder there are so many confused and conflicted ideas about what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. A Christ follower is a person who, a lot of different ideas. Here's an idea. How about we listen to Jesus on this? That's what we're going to do. In the midst of everything that is recorded about what Jesus said, he explained the reasons that he came. Now, if we would just listen to what he had to say about his reason for coming here, I'm convinced we could get more in tune with what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus. Would that work for you? We're going to be looking at, for several weeks, these, these statements by Jesus, these words from Jesus where he says, here's why I came, so that we can walk out the doors week to week saying, well, here's what it means to follow Jesus, and I'm going to do that this week. I'm going to do that clear up through Easter. So we worked to get all eyes on Jesus. That's our theme for this year. We just spent several weeks looking at who Jesus said he is, the great I am statements. For these next weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus being on purpose. We're going to talk about Jesus on purpose. The setting today where we're going to do that is in your Bibles in Matthew, starting in chapter 5. It is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus. We call it the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus, well, climbed up a mountain and gave this sermon. Takes up three chapters in your Bible, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you'll open up to Matthew, the first 
of the New Testament books, and then chapter 5, that's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a description by Jesus of what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. I heard someone describe it that way. And if you want a picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 would be a really good place to start so that if somebody hypothetically asked you, what is a follower of Jesus? A follower of Jesus is someone who you would have some good answers for that. And this could help you fill in those blanks. Very early in this sermon, in chapter 5, Jesus makes six statements that people could take wrongly. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Hear the rub of that? You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give to her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, You've also heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, those are radical sounding statements. Jesus took all those things that they had heard. They were from the Old Testament except for the hate your neighbor part. They were from the Old Testament law. And Jesus said, you have heard this, but I say this. It's almost as if listening to Jesus and what he has to say is more important than what you have heard someone said. Look at the rest of chapter 7. The last verse, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gets to the end of all of these things, it says that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. The word means they were struck. It's like someone had reached up and slapped them in the face. Because, it says, he was speaking to them as one who had, what? Authority. Not as their scribes. It was Jesus saying, I say to you. So this concept that we're looking at this morning is really important for anyone who is trying to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What Jesus taught that day was going to be so radical for the people who were listening to it that they were astonished at the end. And he had to put some words in the beginning part of it to help them digest what he was about to say. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, heaven and earth, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Somebody was t- trying to describe some friends of his who were married. He, he said they are good people. They have a strange and wonderful relationship. He's strange, she's wonderful. And I think that we followers of Jesus have a relationship to the Old Testament sometimes that's like that. It is both strange and it's wonderful. On one hand... We refer to the Old Testament, we rely on it, we relish it, we repeat it, and on the other hand, we relinquish it and we run from it. We're not even sure what to do with it. You know, look at your Bible, open it up again to the beginning of the book of Matthew. If you've already got it open there, just just take a look. I want you to see something about your Bible this morning between the Old and New Testament. Do you see that? Approximately 80% of your Bible is the Old Testament. 80%. But we often take that Old Testament and we treat it like last week's meatloaf. We're not sure what to do with it. And then along comes Jesus. Jesus, remember, arrives at the beginning of the New Testament. Jesus was born as a Jew. Jesus was born under that Old Testament law. Jesus grew up learning that Old Testament law. The Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. Jesus observed Old Testament feasts. Jesus kept the Sabbath. And at the same time, the message that came with Jesus was that God was establishing a new covenant. He was bringing in something new. And in Jesus, the whole Old Testament prophets, the whole Old Testament law reaches its culmination. Jesus yelled out from the cross, it is finished, and something new had happened. What was it? What was finished? What was the new thing? Did Jesus just wipe out the whole Old Testament? What do we followers of Jesus do today, not only with the the Ten Commandments, but with the whole 613 commandments from the Old Testament? I'm glad you asked that. So I want to toss out this morning a single line to summarize what I think we can take with us from Matthew 5 today as we look at it more thoroughly, and that is this. Everything the Old Testament demands is met in Jesus, and only in Jesus. The Old Testament, I think, to us is kind of like medicine. On one hand, we're glad that we can take it. We're glad for pain relief, aren't we? We're glad for chemotherapy that can take away cancer. We're glad for surgery that can fix things, but we're not so glad for the potential to become addicted. We're not so glad for having to recover from surgery. We're not so glad for the side effects of chemotherapy. And I see some of that in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example this morning that I think is going to make some people a bit squirmy. Are you ready? Here it is. 
living a homosexual lifestyle is condemned in the scriptures. And for that reason, we teach that it's wrong. And at the same time, we also invite all people, all people to life in Jesus. People who all have sinned and all are falling, falling short of the glory of God. Amen? And that being said, if you're trying to make a biblical case for that from just the Old Testament, be careful. People turn to the book of Leviticus to point out how homosexual behavior is an abomination. Sure enough, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, it's there. Along with incest, rape, adultery, bestiality. But do you understand that people who don't even know much about the Bible and people who don't accept the Bible also turn to those chapters and will call you out? Really, they'll ask. You believe that? Really? Do you think that those people should be stoned to death? Do you condemn people for eating bacon or shrimp? Do you condemn people for having two kinds of material in their fabric? What about the Sabbath? Do you work on Saturday? See what I mean about squirmy? We need to be intellectually honest and we need to be prepared so we better figure out what we think of the whole Old Testament law, all 613 commands, and we'd better have more than just Leviticus 18 and 20 in hand when we discuss God's instruction about topics for this day that are very important. Amen? So, you can quit squirming. Jesus is the fulfillment of that law. Elon Musk buys out a big company. He becomes the CEO, and like what happens in most takeovers, what's the first thing that's usually done? Typically, all the people in upper management get booted. And the new guy puts in place the people that he wants there. Let me tell you this morning, if you're not yet a believer, and if you are, that's what Jesus wants to do in your life personally. But that's not how his kingdom gets introduced, by just wiping out the whole Old Testament like it was a big mistake. Jesus said, we looked at it in Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not to overthrow it, not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And that's what Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, when he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That word end, it means the fulfillment, the completion. It's finally finished, the end of the law. One of the ways that we can rightly use the Old Testament law is to learn how does it point to Jesus. How is it fulfilled by Jesus? Go back to the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Mankind is going to need a savior. That would be Jesus. The world is condemned to die in a flood. Only eight people are going to be saved on an ark, and that ark represents our salvation that we have in Jesus. Abraham takes his son Isaac up on a hill in Moriah to offer him there as a sacrifice to God. God provides a substitute, and the whole thing is a picture of Jesus. 
God has the people sacrifice a Passover lamb. It's very detailed, and it all points to Christ, our Passover. God gives the Jews a complex system of sacrifices. Bulls, sheep, goats, doves, pigeons, thousands and thousands of animals bled to death. Rivers of blood. What's the point? Well, it makes sense when Jesus becomes our final sacrifice. Jesus was the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy that pointed to him. No one else did that, not even close. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. See how that comes together? Everything the Old Testament demands is met in Jesus and only in Jesus. That's true of the way that Jesus fulfilled everything that the Old Testament was pointing to. In another way, Jesus was a fulfillment of the whole Old Testament system of law. He fulfilled that too. Something's going on in our country. I hope that you have paid attention to it. And if you haven't, I hope you pay more attention to it. It's the erosion of law. And that erosion of law in general is just another indicator of how we're drifting further away from God as a culture. Because the whole concept of law comes from God in the first place. When a law gets issued, it creates a requirement. Works like this. Here's a law. Do not murder. So anyone who murders will be punished. And unless there is a penalty, law has no power. Anyone who does not murder will not be punished for murder. That's law. Keep the law, escape the penalty. Break the law, suffer the penalty. That is how law works. If it doesn't follow that order, if there aren't penalties, if the penalties aren't enforced, if innocent people are penalized, if there are no clear rules, if there is no obligation, then law is meaningless. But law creates a requirement. You and I live under laws, don't we? And we have the opportunity to meet the requirement of law in one of two ways. It's true for everybody. One of the ways that you can meet and fulfill a law is keep the law. Jim is a policeman. How am I doing, Jim? <laughs> keep the law. So it's fulfilled by your submission to it. You don't get penalized. That's one way you meet the requirement of the law. You can do that. Here's a second way. You break the law and you're penalized. You meet the punishment requirement of the law by paying the price for your disobedience. Like the, the theme song of Beretta, don't do the time or the crime if you can't do the time, right? You do the crime, you do the time. Break the law, pay for it. Keep the law, escape the penalty. Break the law, suffer the penalty. So, if we keep God's law... If we always live up to the standard of God's holiness, we will escape punishment. That is how law works. It's what Scripture says. That if you keep the law, you can live. And we can fulfill it by just obeying the law perfectly. That's why you and I should be very grateful that the law has been fulfilled by Jesus instead. 
Either we can fulfill the requirement by our perfect obedience, or we can fulfill the requirement by being punished for it, not keeping it. How's that work? And that's the bad news. Here's the good news. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What good news. Jesus fulfilled the law by perfect obedience. And Jesus fulfilled the law been entrusted. The whole punishment has been taken on by someone else. So, the law has been fulfilled The law has been ended by being fulfilled. How do you live under a law that has been fulfilled? How do we learn to live under a law that has reached its end? How do we do that? who need to let God deal
deal with their feelings of guilt. The writer of Hebrews says he can take that. He can take that away. He can deal with that. So live free from guilt. Third, live free to keep the law as a debt of gratitude with unselfish motives. Everything that the Old Testament demands is met in Jesus and only in Jesus. Can I get a uh-huh on that? It is met in Jesus and only in Jesus. And someone might ask, okay, if we're If we aren't under law anymore, then why even worry about keeping it? Isn't that kind of like just a license to sin? Shouldn't I at least feel guilty? Shouldn't the church at least make me feel bad so that I do what's right? You know, when God gave Israel rules for holy living in the Old Testament, he repeated to them this line, You should be holy because I, your God, am holy. You be holy. I have to. Being holy people isn't just about saving our own necks. We do it to please the one who has saved us because we love him. This was never about you and me. This was never about just what we get. We owe obedience to God just because he's God and we're not. Like Bob Ray at Lincoln Christian University says, God is God and I am Bob. But we also owe the debt of gratitude if we understand that we have been rescued by Jesus from forever in hell. We owe him a debt of gratitude. And now we can obey him from purely unselfish motives if we understand that we've been saved by him. We used to owe a debt of sin that we could never repay, and now we owe this debt of gratitude that we're going to have forever to repay. What a great arrangement. So I just want to ask you this morning, where are you at on this? I hope that you've got a better way to fill in the blank when someone says to you, what's the difference between someone who is a follower of Christ and someone who is not? A follower of Christ is someone who you should have something to fill that in with. Chapter 4 of Romans, Paul is quoting from Psalm 32, and he, he says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This morning, I'd like to invite you just to be numbered with those blessed people, to be a person whose sins are not counted by God so that he doesn't number them, to be a person in whose life the fulfillment of the law has fully been met by Jesus Christ, and now you get to be brought in on that. That could be you this morning. How wonderful to get to watch that this morning. How wonderful. And that could be you, too, today. If you're ready to accept Christ, if you're ready to start a new life in him, then we're inviting you to make that very same acknowledgement that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, who wants to be your Savior,
He's not going to force it on you. But if you'll accept that this morning, that can be yours too.